The title of my message is Marriage and a Biblical Christian Worldview. And it's got a subtitle to it, I guess, if you would like, uh, A Battle Between Cultures, the Secular Culture versus a Christian Culture. Now, for those of you who are visitors here, I, I very seldom address anything that could be construed as political, I guess. And I don't believe anything I'm going to talk about today is political. Uh, my, my goal today is to have us understand from a biblical perspective some of the things that take place in our culture. And understand that there is a, a biblical worldview, a Christian worldview, that we should have. What is a worldview? What is a worldview? Well, first of all, everybody has one. So you may not know what it is exactly, but you've got one. What it really consists of is you know, presuppositions that we might have about a particular thing or, or the biases that we have that affect the way that we view life and view reality and all the things that are around us. We all have biases. And where do those biases come from? Well, they come from a lot of different places. For example, education. What we are taught, what we learn, depending upon where we go to school, what kind of school, we pick up biases from the education, from our upbringing, the family that you grow up in, the home that you grow up in. We pick up biases. We look at things through the view of our parents or those that we're raised with. So family, education, the culture we live in. Boy, our culture all around us. What is that includes? You know, the books that we read. It might in, uh, include the media that we watch on television, or the radio we listen to, or or the movies we go to and watch. All of these things can be absorbed into our mind, and in that we have a worldview. And a lot of times, you know what? And this is kind of sad and a little bit scary. It happens by osmosis. You know what that means? You don't have to do anything, really. You just kind of sit there like a potato, and it just kind of enters your brain. Okay? That's scary. We shouldn't let anything do that. But that's what happens to many, many people. If you ask them, why do you believe what you say you believe, they couldn't tell you. That's one of the problems with this marriage issue that we're facing this week on an election for a marriage amendment. There's been a whole lot of knee-jerk reactions on both sides of the issue. If I say I'm for marriage to be one man, one woman, they immediately call me some kind of homophobic, bigot, intolerant, and, and you don't want people to love each other. That's ridiculous. None of that is true. None of that's true. But on the flip side, as soon as someone says, you know, vote no, we assume that there's some kind of radical left-wing out there nutcase who doesn't want to see the family survive. That's not true most of the time. The problem is we have worldviews that are in conflict with one another. And as Christians, we need to understand what our worldview is. Some of the basic premises of a biblical worldview, and I could list a lot, but I'm not going to. I'm just going to throw a few of these out there because I think most of us would agree with these. With our worldview, it starts with the fact that we believe God exists. We believe there is a creator God that created and spoke and all things came into being. And he is the standard by which we judge everything else, right? We start there. That starts our biblical worldview. We believe that this book, the Bible, is the Word of God. It is a divinely inspired book given to men. It is God speaking to us inerrantly 
through what men wrote down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. To have a biblical worldview, that's where we go. The problem is already a lot of people don't go there. They haven't even got that point settled in their spirit or in their mind. You say something like that around a lot of people, they already think I'm a lunatic because I would say that. We believe that truth or there is such a thing as absolute truth. Not everything is relative. There is absolute truth. The word of God is absolute truth. It's true all the time, everywhere, for all people, forever. That's what makes it absolute truth. Are there such things that are relative truth? Of course there are. There are certain things where one thing may be true and something else may be true another time. But some people would say there is no such thing as absolute truth. And I know you've all heard this before, but that proves the ridiculousness of their statement. They're declaring that to be an absolute truth, that there is no absolute truth. But we as Christians believe the Word of God is absolute truth. A simplistic definition could be just this. We have the mind of Christ. That we have the mind of Christ. Now, we know that and and understand that, sort of. But I want to give you some points that I think make it real practical. Specifically and particularly, when we talk about a biblical worldview, it's our beliefs about God, about creation, about humanity, our moral order, and purpose. Man, if you can nail those things down based on something that's absolute, life is a lot easier. They think, those that would disagree with what I'm saying, they think that it's confining, restricting. Must be horrible to live that way. On the contrary, man, it's really good to know the ground we stand on is solid ground. And that it's not shifting all the time. One day we're over here, one day we're over there, one day I'm saved, the next day I'm not, the next day I'm a jerk, the next day I'm a nice guy. Well, that might be true. But, not my salvation. There are lots of things that are absolute. God, who's God? When we have an absolute understanding of God, we know to whom and what we ultimately answer to. We need to please God. Our, glor- our, our goal is to glorify God. When it comes to creation, what is our reality? Boy, when we understand and believe that the Bible explains to us where, what creation is, it makes some sense. We can understand reality. Humanity. Who am I? How did I get here? Man, the world's all looking for those answers, aren't they? Who am I? Where did I come from? How did I get here? I'm a child of God, created in His image. The gift of life, a miracle given to my, my parents. Boy, we can answer some of these questions so easily when we understand truth. Moral order. Boy, how do we determine right and wrong? How do we determine right or wrong? We have the Word of God. We have truth. Biblical worldview. To live like Christ. Purpose. Is there a reason for my existence? Why am I here? Boy, oh boy. There are all kinds of problems in people's lives because they don't know the answer to that question. Why am I here? You and I are here to bring glory and honor to God. And in that process, He has a divine purpose for every one of us that will be the most fulfilling thing we ever experience in our lives. And He has laid it out for us and He'll show it to us and He'll reveal it to us. Not the whole thing at one time, But step by step by faith, he will show and reveal that to us.
So a biblical worldview defined as an overarching view of the world based on God's revealed truth, the Bible. And it should direct our life in this world. That is what a biblical worldview is, briefly. There's some statistics here. I'm just going to throw three of them at you. But boy, are they revealing. This is done by Barna, a pretty reputable polling organization. And when Barna polled to see how many people actually base their life and their decisions, etc., from a biblical worldview, they found out that about 4% of American adults have a biblical worldview. 4%. That would mean if there was 150 of us in here and we were like the world, that would mean six of us would have a biblical worldview. It says only 9% of professing born-again Christians, professing is the key word, but still, professing born-again United States Christians, only 9%. So when we take the general population and shrink it just to those that say, I'm a born-again believer, 9 out of 100 have a biblical worldview. And the last one probably gives us a real picture of some of the root of this problem, when they polled Protestant pastors across this nation in the Americas, it came out 51% even said, yes, they have a biblical worldview. 51%. Half of the pastors don't have a biblical worldview. Now, I'm not just saying that they don't always live and make every decision based on that. I'm just saying they don't even claim to have one. I mean, I make a lot of mistakes and I get off track. I I would at least claim I have a biblical worldview. I I wrestle with it like you all do. We all do. But but I would say, yeah, I have one. 50% say, no, I don't have one. Why? Because the Bible isn't the Word of God. It isn't inspired. They don't trust the Bible. Because it's not what they want to hear. You know, these statistics reveal in a really powerful way why America has so many of the problems that they've got right now. Some of the issues and some of the decisions we're facing today are because of these statistics. And we're, we're, we're directly facing one of them on Tuesday when we go and vote. You know, defining marriage as one man and one woman. I mean, it's amazing that we even have to consider that. Now, I'm not going to go into all of the... I hope, you know, you've probably seen so many commercials it makes you want to vomit. I'm not going to go into all of the, the arguments that we're hearing out there. It's, it's not a love issue. It's a definition issue. It's not going to change a single law. None. It's already the law in Minnesota. But the problem is this. Legislators and judges across the nation change the laws without giving the people a vote. So all this issue really is in Minnesota is we are allowing the people to vote on whether we want to define marriage the way it's been defined for somewhere around eight to 10,000 years. Or if we want to leave it open for the possibility that it could go another direction. It is not about politics. It's not about political parties. It's about do I have a biblical worldview or do I not? That's what it's about. 
And if those who came to be part of Christ, who claim to be part of Christ's church have trouble with this issue, they do not have a biblical worldview. And, boy, I hope you hear me. I'm, I'm not, we don't want to judge anybody. That's not the thing. I want us to understand what a biblical worldview looks like and realize, you know who created and defined marriage? God. And that definition has worked pretty well for, depending on your theology, eight, ten thousand years, maybe longer, I don't know, but I always just throw eight, ten thousand years out there. It's worked pretty well. Because we're a broken person, because we sin, there's problems with it. But the definition has been around that long. And no culture, no cultures ever tried to redefine it. It's been abused, but never been redefined. Start with the scripture in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. It simply says this. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. And everything you're going to hear me say, I'll come back to this at the very end, but I want to throw it out here right now so we understand this. God forgives any and all sin we repent of. Any and all sin. What a loving God. Okay, we'll come back to that. Let the marriage be held in honor among all. God is going to judge, eventually, all who defile it. I'm going to share a few points, and the main points uh, I'm taking from a sermon of a, a pastor from the Twin Cities named John Piper. Many of you have maybe heard of him, read some of his books. The sermon he preached that I'm stealing these main points from, he preached back in June of this year in, in addressing um, marriage, holding marriage in honor. And you'll see the main points, I've taken them directly from his sermon, and you'll be able to tell because he, he puts, puts together sentences so much better than I do that I have to read them two, three times to just understand them sometimes. But they're so good. First point is this. Marriage is created and defined by God in the scriptures as the sexual and covenantal union of a man and a woman and lifelong allegiance to each other alone as husband and wife, with a view to displaying Christ's covenant relationship in his blood-bought church. Wow, that's a big one to digest, isn't it? We'll break it down a little bit. But basically, he's saying it's defined as a man and a woman. One man, one woman, in a sexual covenantal union. A covenant it's like a legal contract. It's like a promise. There is a covenantal aspect to it. When we, we say our vows as a, as a man and woman when we're getting married, there's a covenant between the man and the wife, husband and the wife, a covenant between them and the Lord. It's, so there's a covenantal picture to it. It's a lifelong allegiance. So we're going to look at four passages quickly to emphasize this point so you know that, that I am not stretching it and, and Pastor John Piper had his act together. In Genesis 1.27, in the first part of verse 28, 
God, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Then God, a little bit later in Genesis, in chapter 2, he links his design for man and womanhood and marriage together. In the verse I just read, you know, he says, it's a man and a woman created in his image to be fruitful and multiply. That's the sexual union. Okay? Then in verse 23 of Genesis chapter 2, it says this, The man said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of me, out of man. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife or cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. In other words, God is saying he he created man and female so that there might be a one flesh union and a covenantal cleaving to one another, a covenant between them, a man and a wife, a covenant cleaving. And that word cleave, debak, says you can't break it apart, adhere to. It's super glued to the extreme. You can't be broken apart. And he says, with a view in this covenant to reproduce, to be fruitful and multiply, to continue the human race. And eventually we're going to see to display God's covenant with his people and with his church. As we move to Matthew chapter 19, verse 4. It's interesting here how, how God takes Genesis 1 that we just read and Genesis 2 we just read and, and puts them together. Jesus puts them together to make a point in Matthew chapter 19. Starting at verse 4, he says, And Jesus answered them as he's being challenged by the Pharisees. He says, answers them, he says, Haven't you read... That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. And he said, for this reason, or therefore, I created a male and female, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, married, family, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together Let no man separate. Now notice, as you even look at that, how Jesus linked creation and marriage with a lifelong covenant. He took Genesis and he linked the three, marriage, creation, marriage, and lifelong covenant by simply weaving the two texts together from the book of Genesis. And when you look at our culture today, Boy, let no man separate takes on a whole new meaning, doesn't it? Let no man separate, man and woman, husband and wife. And again, understanding, and understanding. If we're like a typical congregation or typical group of people, uh, there's many, 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 many of us in here who have been divorced, some multiple times. And that's just the way, what happens in a broken world, a world out of God's order. But it's not God's plan, and it's totally forgivable. So don't let guilt or shame come on you. If anything I'm saying will take you down that track, I want you to hear what I'm really trying to say. When we look at this text, 
I'm going to take us to another one in Ephesians that most of you are familiar with, Ephesians chapter 5. And in this text, it makes not only the distinction between male and female, husband and wife, but we see the covenantal significance, the promise, the contract, the significance portraying the union, the covenant between Christ and the church. This mystery is what Paul referred to it as. In Ephesians 5, and it's kind of a longer section here, I'm going to read it kind of quickly. Hopefully you can see it. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Then verse 28, probably on the next slide. Okay. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, Again, going back to Genesis, and the two shall become one flesh. Then notice what it says here at the end. We get so hung up sometimes on the previous stuff I just read, we forget this is there. This mystery is great. What mystery, Paul? What are you talking about? He tells us, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. What Paul is saying to us here, and what we've seen in the other scriptures that we read, man and woman were created. Most of us know the Genesis story. It was just man. It was just Adam. All the animals paraded by, and he named them all, and he noticed something unique. Every single one had a corresponding mate. Every single animal that came by, there was a male animal and a female animal, and he's looking around, and he says, well, what am I supposed to do? And God says, this isn't good for man to be alone. I am going to create an acceptable mate for the man that can perpetuate the species so that they can be fruitful and multiply. And he takes the rib and he makes woman. Man and woman created by God to become husband and wife in a covenantal union, a lifelong union, a monogamous union to one another And then now he is saying, the mystery of this whole thing is, it's a picture of Jesus and the church. A covenantal union. Husband and wife. Man and woman. This is, to me, the profound meaning behind marriage and why it absolutely cannot be redefined, at least in the least bit, from a biblical sense. It is a picture of Christ in the church, husband and wife. It is a picture of unconditional love, of servanthood. Picture of Jesus loving the church. It's a wife, a woman, submitted unto her husband as unto the Lord, as the church is to be submitted to the Lord. It's a picture. It's a message. He's saying, I have created this thing on earth called marriage between a man and a woman 
not just so they could have companionship, not just so they could reproduce and keep the species going, but I've also given it so every time you see a married couple, you're seeing a picture representing Jesus Christ and His church. And you cannot do that if you take two men and two women and call that marriage. It's not the same. A man and a woman are not interchangeable. They are equal in God's eyes, in His sight. He loves them equally. They're gifted, but they're different. Just look around if you don't believe that. Marry one. They're different. Both sexes can say amen to that. Man, Cindy and I are not the same. We like a lot of things, but we don't agree on a few. Quite a few. But I'm learning. I read more and more. But he's saying it's a picture. That's why it's not interchangeable. It's a picture of the femininity, the masculinity. It's a picture of submission and unconditional love. And he's saying, that's how it is with me and you, church. I love you so much. I lay down my life. We took communion as a picture of what Jesus did on that cross for us. Unconditional love. Unconditional love. And he says, because I love you so much, show me how much you love me by giving me your life, submitting to me. And the good news is, it'll bless your socks off when you do it. The fullness of his blessings will be released when we truly submit to him. And it's a picture. The basic role of a wife and a husband are not interchangeable. The mystery here is God had a double meaning when he created man and woman, when he established marriage, and when he defined marriage. It is a covenantal union between one man and one woman. The second point is this. There is no such thing as so-called same-sex marriage. And it would be really wise not to ever call it that. The point isn't that so-called sex marriage shouldn't exist. The point is it doesn't and it can't unless you redefine what marriage is. It can't exist. God defined it. He created it. The only way it can possibly work is a one man and one woman. That is the biblical worldview of what a marriage should look like, defined by God. If we believe God is God, if we believe the Bible is the word of God, marriage is simply defined as a committed lifelong partnership and a sexual relationship between a man and a wife, a man and a woman, not between two men and not between two women. It's impossible. God has a divine order in all of his creation. Amen? Do we, do we believe that? There is an order. It's not random. It wasn't all of a sudden, some one day God sent a lightning bolt and all of a sudden everything appeared in life. No, he spoke the words... And he has an order to it. The problem is this. Sin messed it up. Sin messed it up. God had a perfectly designed plan and a perfectly designed order when he finished the seven days of creation. And then Adam and Eve messed it up. 
We can see that in Genesis chapter 3, what happened and the consequences of it. And then you can read all the rest of the New Testament or the Old Testament and see, man, oh man, oh man, did it cause a lot of problems. But it's still causing problems today. It's causing problems in my life. It's causing problems in your life. Every one of us are broken and disordered in some way. Did you know that? Every single one of us. Whether it's emotionally broken, emotionally disordered, whether it's physical, you know, whether it's in our soulish nature or our human fleshly nature, it's there. We're broken. But God is the only answer. He's the answer. So when we look at same-sex discussions, we need to understand that same-sex desires and same-sex orientation are part of a broken and disordered sexuality. And the reason it is that it owes to God's subjection of the created order to futility because of man's sin. Point three, slide 13 if you're doing it. It's another one of those sentences that's just packed with stuff that Piper used. These disorders, and we all have them, remember that. This is just another outworking of that disorder. In Romans 8.20, Paul writes this, and he kind of sums up this situation. He says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. I'm going to stop there for a second. That's where he got a lot of that sentence that had all those words in it, and you go, what do you mean by all that? He's saying here that, that... Have you not, let's see, where am I at here? But as the church is subject to Christ, no, let's keep going. Where am I at? Somebody help me. Okay, I found it. You probably weren't worried, but I was. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In other words, God allowed us to be subjected. It was his idea, his cause. Why? So that we would realize this really is not good. This is bad. It stinks. It's not pleasant. I don't like it. I enjoy it. Is there a way out? That's why he allowed it. And that's where he says it's, it's because he subjected to it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoptions and sons. We're all broken. We're all broken. We all sin. And when you look at this discussion about same sex, we need to understand that same sex intercourse is not the same thing as same sex desire. Temptation and sin, the actual sinful acts, are different in all of our lives. We can be tempted. We can have a desire, but we deal with it in a right way, a godly way. That's not sin. But when we act it out, when something occurs out of our brokenness, out of our disorder, that's called sin. So we need to understand, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, it says this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's bad enough, but then he goes on and says, Don't be deceived. 
Neither will your fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, the effeminate, the homosexual, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The condemnation here is serious, isn't it? We don't like that verse if you're like me. It's like, yeah, I wish that verse wasn't there. If it was, or at least not so clear. But the reality is we understand it's, it's, condemnation isn't on those who commit an act here. Once or twice, whatever, they stumble into this sin. The condemnation here is for those who reject the truth and intentionally choose to live in a sinful lifestyle contrary to the Word of God. And notice, this isn't just a homosexual issue. Notice that, that verse that we read. There's a whole lot of things listed there. All of them are sinfulness out of our brokenness and our disorderliness. So for us to have a knee-jerk reaction about homosexuality is really hypocritical. That's not the issue. That's not the issue. The issue is the sin. Now, when you talk like I've been talking, <laughs> you're going to get accused of being hateful. Right? Ever heard that? You hater, bigot, intolerant, and unloving. That is exactly the opposite of the truth. If I have a biblical worldview, here's where I'm going to just give you a quick snapshot. I believe that we're all sinners, and the penalty for sin is death for any who does not repent. But if we repent, Jesus Christ died for everybody. He died for everybody. He died for every single heterosexual there ever will be or ever was, and he died for every homosexual there ever will be or ever was, if they repent. And if I really believe that, is it loving to endorse sinful lifestyle? What would you think of me if I came up to you and said, I know you got a little bit of an alcohol problem, but hey, baby, go for it. Drink more. Stay, hang with it. You'll build up some tolerance. You won't fall down near as much. I know a little adultery is causing a few problems, but don't worry about it. You just keep on down that road. You'd think I was a complete idiot. I would be. For you and I to say, let's redefine marriage as two men or two women is sick and perverted. It is not a biblical worldview. It would be just as foolish as me or you as a Christian who says we're a follower of Jesus Christ and not just a fan to endorse it, whether we endorse it in silence or we actively speak about it or we go in a voting booth and check yes. We need to not remain silent about something like this. This is a really big deal. But the good news is, Jesus died for everybody. And that's what the message should be. We as Christians aren't out there to be hateful. And we aren't out there to just win an argument. We aren't out there to put anybody down. The issue is, you know what? People come to me and say, you think it's wrong? I mean, I see some amazingly well-done commercials that it says, you think it's wrong for two people to love one another? And I say, absolutely not. Can two men love one another? Absolutely. Can two women love one another? Absolutely. Can they get married and have sex? God forbid. That's called sin. That's called sin. That's not the issue. The issue is a biblical worldview. You know, on Tuesday, you know, when we go in and vote, and I encourage you to vote, you get a yes or a no choice. 
Some people, I think, are still confused at what the choice is. There's already a law. And that's what one of the commercials says. We don't need to do this. There's already a law. Yes, there is, but there's already cases filed and politicians lining up to change the law. That's why we're trying to preempt this and say, you know what? Our Constitution says that way no judge and no group of politicians can do something against the will of the people. But you know what? If the will of the people is 51% that we can redefine it, that's what's going to happen. That's why the church cannot remain silent. We need to do our part. Because a vote, yes, protects the definition of marriage. Think about it. Cut through all of the advertisements, that's all it does. It protects the definition that God established in creation thousands of years ago. But leaving that box blank or checking no leaves open an opportunity for legislators or judges to redefine marriage through the broken worldview of our culture. That's the decision. Now, I know that sounded like a political speech, didn't it? I hope it didn't. I hope. You know, we have just finished that fan or follower series. And we define a follower as someone who's completely committed to Christ. If we're completely committed to Christ, we should be doing everything we can in our own, our own flesh by the end with the leading of the Holy Spirit to live out a biblical worldview. And there is no way redefining marriage fits into that biblical worldview. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I again ask, if anything I said was a wrong spirit or not truth, Lord, I pray it just falls to the ground and does no harm. God, I pray, I pray, God, that for each one of us, you help us to see things through the Scripture. That we would see things through a biblical worldview. Knowing, God, that it is freeing, that it brings blessing on individuals, and on nations. So God, I pray for our nation. I pray for the upcoming elections. I pray for our leaders. I pray for President Obama, Vice President Biden, all their cabinet. I pray for Governor Romney and their families. God, we pray for our leaders. Watch over them. Protect them. Give them wisdom. God, we pray in crying out to you in mercy that you would give us men and women of any and every political persuasion that would govern through a biblical worldview. God, we cry out to you for mercy. Lord, we thank you that no matter what happens in the natural, you are God. And you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. We trust you. Our trust and hope is in you. Our faith is in you. So God, I pray you would bless us God, I pray for peaceful elections across this nation. God, we pray that there would be no rioting. God, there would pray that there would be no complications. God, we just pray for a peaceful election. God, we pray that you would be glorified in this. And again, Lord, we thank you for this nation, the United States of America that we live in. You have blessed us so much. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.